I did a quick survey uh, through the week uh, of some mums about what the most frustrating things about uh, mums and their kids. Uh, you know, what is it that really irritates it irritates mums about their families. And uh, this is the, some of the list uh, that I received. Uh, losing a sense of self because the kids take over life. Uh, being overtouched. There you go. I'm going to a couple of nods over here. You know, get, 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 get fingers off. You know, stop putting your finger in my belly button. No, that's, sorry, that's a personal thing for me and my kids. But, uh, <laughs> uh, whinging uh, and nothing ever being enough. Uh, uh, denial and blaming of other children for what you actually saw them doing themselves. I was looking and you did it and you're saying you didn't. Uh, personal space, uh, particularly the lack of it and uh, particularly according to several mums, not being alone, uh, left alone while on the toilet. There you go, the, uh, uh, must be a monkey thing. Uh, <laughs> uh, getting distracted by toys, drawing, TV, pretty much anything when under time pressure and you're trying to get them out the door into the car to get somewhere. Uh, losing all their things, uh, cleaning up only to have the place trashed five seconds later. And actually, one mum sent a photo. I don't know if we can get that up here. Uh, I've lost the clicker. There you go. Uh, there you go. Yes, I've got my dishes done. Meanwhile, out in the living room. There you go. Uh, <laughs> uh, being told, you couldn't know, you don't understand, uh, which is particularly true when you've got teenagers uh, or a husband or something. But anyway, you know, um, <laughs> Being asked the same question over and over and over and over and over and, you know, why? 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 Are we there yet? 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 No, sir. <laughs> I take it you know some of those frustrations. Uh, there's a few nervous giggles going around. But um, then I ask the same mums, uh, what, what takes you beyond frustration and makes your blood really boil? What really makes you angry? Uh, what ticks mums off and sends, sends her off the deep end? And two things got repeated over and over again in the responses. Uh, outright disobedience uh, and being completely ignored were the two things that just... They really make our mums mad. Uh, one mum wrote... Uh, angry at saying the same thing three times, but having to keep in mind even after I've asked them to do it because they won't have done it the first time. Uh, another mum says, angry when they're rude and nasty to me and to each other when your teenager treats you like an idiot and gives attitude. Uh, angry and not being listened to after the fourth request. There you go, that was a different mum. Uh, she has to go beyond four. Uh, as one mate wrote this in response to my survey, I actually got it printed up here, the next slide. Thanks, Ben. There you go. Ah, oh, your kid's a good listener. That's cool. In my house, no one even knows I exist until I turn into Ursula from The Last Act of Little Mermaid. And if you don't know who that is, there. <laughs> Internet off. You get the point. Mums hate being ignored by their kids. And I think rightly so. It's right that they're angry because it shows complete contempt for them. It's, it's a despising of them, no, not just as people, but as the one who gave you life, the one who nurtured you and gave you the best start in life that they could in most cases. And what do they generally get in return for all of that? Ingratitude, attitude, and to be treated as if they didn't even exist. 
They've got every right to be angry about that. And as we come to Romans chapter 1 this morning, the second half, that's exactly the point that's being made about us and God, that he is angry. In fact, he's furious with us as a human race because we treat him with exactly the same contempt. And like our mums, he has every right to be angry about it. Uh, for those who've joined us just for today, maybe you're visiting because of mum or uh, uh, maybe you're a mum who's visiting, uh, we've been working through uh, the letter to the Romans, which is essentially explaining why it is that we so desperately need Jesus. Uh, we saw it last week in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, which really I think serve as a heading for the whole book. Paul says this, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness doesn't come from us but is given to us. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. Now there are many things in life that we might be ashamed of. We might be ashamed of our kids' behaviour sometimes, especially in public, at the shopping centre and the tantrums. Uh, maybe sometimes we're ashamed of our own behaviour. Maybe we're ashamed of things that happen in our nation or in a group that we belong to. But here is something never to be ashamed of. Jesus, Jesus who is God's son, he has come and he is the king. And he is the only one who's able to make us right with our heavenly father, our creator, that's what the gospel is that Paul says he's not ashamed of. It's the message about Jesus and that he's the one we need to save us. But that begs the question, what does he need to save us? What does he need to save us from? And that's what our section beginning in uh, verse 18 of chapter 1 sets out to explain. Why we need saving. In fact, the whole book of Romans really is this logical argument that starts at this point, why we need saving. And it moves right through to how then God saves us and then what that's going to mean in our lives as it gets towards the end and, and what that means for God's Old Testament people and his New Testament people and all kinds of questions come up. But it all stems out of this issue. What is it we need saving from? Uh, yeah, and that's what he's setting out to explain. See there, verse 18, the wrath of God. That's what we need saving from. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The problem we face, the reason we need saving is because God is angry, he's furious, and it's us that he's furious with. He's not angry at the fish. He's not angry at the monkeys, despite the poo flinging. He's not angry at the mosquitoes, like they bother us, but they don't bother him. He's angry at us human beings. Uh, and what, is, what this is saying is that his anger is being shown now in the world, and if we were just paying attention, we'd see it clearly being displayed everywhere because it is being revealed. That is, God's wrath is on display right now. Just like if we were paying attention to mum, we might see the signs that her blood was starting to boil. You know, the tick. You know, the face starting to go a bit red. The voice getting louder. The fact that she's heading straight for the wooden spoon drawer. You know? <laughs> the signs are there if you care to see them. Now, 
Before we see the signs, I just want to reflect on God's anger. Some people get a bit thingy and upset about it. God's anger is not like our anger. We're, we're temperamental, we're, we're uncontrolled, we rage, we're quick to get angry when someone gets in our way. Whereas God is righteous and he's slow to get angry, but he does get angry. He's just when he gets angry and he's always in control uh, of what he's doing. And so when he gets angry, it is a righteous and, and right anger. He's never angry because he's had a bad night's sleep. He's not angry because he's stressed out by things at work. Uh, he's angry because he is just and righteous and because he so deeply cares about what is going on in this world. You see, anger is not the opposite of love. God's loving. The opposite of loving is apathetic, is not caring. God deeply cares and that's why he gets angry. But what particularly is he angry at? What does this say? Well, it says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. He's angry about a couple of things. He's about our godlessness as a race. The fact that we just do what we like as if he wasn't there and who couldn't care less what he thinks. That kind of contemptuous arrogance that we're all right on our own without him. Thank you very much. And he's angry about our wickedness, the evil that we do and continue to do against each other, against ourselves, against our world and against him. He can't just ignore it and let it pass. That would be completely unloving of him. He's not going to be like some parents, just laugh it off and go, ah, the kids are just being kids. <laughs> yeah, good on them, as they stab each other in the face. Uh, no, he's angry because it's a fundamental denial of the truth. We suppress the truth by our wickedness. What's the truth that we suppress? Well, the truth that he exists, that he is God, and that we're not. Have a look at it there. Verse 9 and explains this truth that we're suppressing by our wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. And I reckon in those two little sentences, he says four fundamental things about the truth that we're suppressing as a race. One, that the knowledge of God is obvious. He, he Obviously he exists. Uh, what may be known about God is plain to people. That is, atheism is not the normal state of humanity. Theism is the normal state of mankind because the knowledge of God is plain and obvious. Two, it's plain to us, secondly, because God has made it plain to us. God's not hiding himself from us. He's not silent. He's openly showing us, uh, showing all of us, some of the things about himself. It's not everything about himself, but he, he, he is displaying parts of his nature. What things? Well, that's the third fundamental fact about this truth that we suppress. What should be obvious about God from the world, just looking around at the world that he's made? It says what should be clear, his eternal power and divine nature. That's what should be clearly seen about God from just looking around his world. His eternal power, that is, he is thumping powerful. Uh, he, he can build grand canyons and the deepest trenches in the oceans. He makes the highest mountains, of which Kosciuszko is not one. <laughs> Everest, K2. He just put them there. He spoke and it all came to being. He, he fills the oceans with water. He fills the sky with stars. 
Uh, he, he created a world which has some tremendously in, enormous, powerful forces chained up and ready to be unleashed at a moment's notice. Volcanoes and earthquakes and hurricanes. And yet none of those are anywhere near as powerful as the God who made even them. With a word, he spoke it into being. He spoke and, and there it all was. That is power. He is of immeasurable power, limitless power. And that's what you can see about God if you care to look. And the other thing that should be obvious just from looking around is his divine nature. That is that he is not of this world. He's not of this universe. He is separate to this world. He's above this world. The world is not God. It is not our mother. It's not Mother Earth who's brought us into existence. It's not Gaia. Uh, the things that... Uh, it's the God who is beyond the universe who brings it into existence. He is the creator. And you can see that in, in the orderliness of things, in, in cause and effect in nature, uh, in, in the stunningly beautiful touches that, that God in his artistry has left in all kinds of ways. All of it is pointing to the fact that there is one who has created it all and who is over all. And so fourth fundamental aspect of this truth that we suppress is that because of his power and existence that is so obviously on display in the world that he's made, we have absolutely no excuse for not knowing him. See that at the end of verse 20? It's all been clearly seen so that men are without excuse. That is no one. Not me, not you, not, not a pygmy in deepest, darkest Africa, not the intellectual in France. Can will die and get to God and go, ah, I fancy that, you're real. <laughs> you know, I couldn't have known you were there. There's no evidence of it. It's obvious. And so no one's got an excuse. To not see God is to not look. It's to close our eyes. It's to ignore him. It's not just being ignorant of him. It's ignoring him. There's a huge difference, a moral difference between being ignorant of something or someone and ignoring them, isn't there? Uh, suppose I was to walk down Oxford Street, not, not the one in town, uh, but the one in Ingleburn here, right? Get some tie for lunch or something, Mother's Day. Yeah, all right. Yeah, we're walking down the road, and um, you're taking me out to lunch for Mother's Day, is that right? Okay, excellent. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm walking down the road, and I see, you know, there's a person coming the other way, and it's you. But I don't know you, and you don't know me. And so, you know, what do we do? We just kind of look down and keep walking, right? We just, uh, we're, we're ignorant of each other and that's not rude as we pass each other's by. But if you do know me and I know you and I see you coming and so what I do is turn my head deliberately or walk across the other side of the road and you're doing exactly the same thing, that we are ignoring each other. We're blanking each other if you watch black books. And, and, and that is profoundly rude. That's a very different thing to being ignorant of each other. And how much worse would it be if the person you were blanking, the person you were ignoring, was family, was your mum or your dad? That's beyond rude. And yet that is exactly what we do to God. People aren't ignorant of God. We are ignoring him. We have no excuse. That is the truth that we as a race suppress and never more so than in the West today. Uh, did you know, fun fact, uh, until the time of Queen Elizabeth, that's the first one, not the one we currently have, back in the late 1500s, 
The word atheist did not exist in the English language because it was just an impossibility. Yeah, there wasn't an available category. The only way you could explain the world and how it worked was in reference to God. But then came what's called the Enlightenment in the 1800s and the rise of, of modern science and, and things changed so it became at least possible to disbelieve in God. Most people didn't and most of the scientists were all Christians and things but it, it became a possibility to dis, disbelieve in God. It wasn't common but it was a possibility. Now that is a significant shift, isn't it, in, in the patterns of thought that something that was impossible to disbelieve to it's possible to disbelieve. But now we've shifted way beyond that uh, to a stage where we're told now by the social and intellectual elite that it would now be impossible to believe in him. That you're a fool if you believe in God. You're a dum-dum who's holding on to old fashions, out-of-date, quaint and childish nonsense. Now, several have come out and admitted that. We just we don't believe God. Professor Richard Lewontin, uh, head of physics at Harvard, has come out and say, it's not that science you know, leads us to believe there's no God. It's that we're committed to there not being a God, which we, why we come up with material explanations. Uh, Dr Scott Todd has said basically the same thing. Even if the argument for intelligent design was perfect and you know, couldn't be knocked down, we still wouldn't believe it because we're committed to naturalism. Nice when they admit it. But you see, it's not rational. It's not the compelling evidence of science or history or archaeology or, or philosophy that excludes the possibility of God. Many of the top people in all those disciplines are in fact Christians still. It's just that the uh, whole lot of others don't want God to be in the picture. We just don't want him. Why wouldn't we want God in the picture? Why do we want to pretend he's not there? Why are we ignoring him? For exactly the same reasons kids ignore their parents and pretend they're not watching because they just want to keep doing whatever they want to do. It's because they don't want to be held accountable and we don't want to be held accountable because we don't want someone who is greater than us either monitoring us or who might deserve some attention and maybe a bit of gratitude, at least a thank you every now and again. You see that in the next bit where he argues that our whole mind and way of thinking has become warped and distorted because we, we hate and, and suppress the obvious truth. And, and so when you're deliberately suppressing what is obviously real, you have to go through all kinds of mental gymnastics and you end up becoming an idiot. Verse 21, how wise are we? Well, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And though they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being or birds or animals or reptiles. And he's saying that, that despite our increasing intelligence as we study and learn and have university stuff, we have become, as a race, completely thick. And you might know people who are like that, who get top marks in the HSC, go on, get a good degree, maybe even get their PhD, couldn't tie their shoelaces, they have no relational skills, you know, kind of thing. Couldn't save their own life if they need to. See, what's he saying here? Deep down, people know there is something more than this world alone. 
But when we suppress the real truth about God, we have to replace him with, with something else, some other God, a God of our own making, a God of this world, a God of this creation, a made-up God who we can control and manage. And, and you see it all over the place. You see it in the weird and wonderful variety of spiritualities and religions and sects which uh, are all around us but totally contradict each other uh, and even contradict themselves. None of them are consistent. Uh, you see it in the postmodern rationalisation, you know, well, if it's true for you, it must be true. That is one of the dumbest, dumbest things anyone could ever say. So I make believe something and it pops into existence. You know what that would do? That would make me God, right? Because my imagination can turn things into reality. It's, it's a lie, <laughs> Um, yeah, I can just make some up, or like Scientology does. Anyway, um, you, you see the stupidity in in our newspapers. Every newspaper that I can think of, even the so-called intellectual ones, there's an astrology column, right? as if wherever the stars are in the sky could determine things about you or your future. You know, when they can't even match the right skies in the sky, stars in the sky to the month that they're supposed to govern because this, it's all shifted in a couple of thousand years since people thought that where they were. Or the New Age movement with its crystals and charms and aromas or, or the pursuit of money and wealth and pleasure, which is so common in our society. That's part of the worship of creation as if it's God. You see it in the worship of the body that happens at our beaches and in our gyms or the worship of experience. All things have become God because we don't want the real one. See, verse 25 pictures it as an exchange, the exchange of the truth for a lie, the exchange of the creator for the creature. And to build your life on a lie, the lie that you're a noble, wise searcher for the truth, the lie that you're not answerable to God, the lie that you cannot know God, the lie that, that you determine your own fate, the lie that only you only have to be true to yourself because there's no one else to be true to, the lie that you are God. To build your life on a lie is to move into darkness. And that's why it says that our foolish hearts have become darkened. And how black that darkness is. A darkness of our own making. A darkness caused by self-deception. A darkness which is rotten to the core. And why wouldn't God be ticked off with that? Why wouldn't that make him angry? We pretend he's not there and then we substitute him for a lie. Well, what does God do in his anger at this foolishness and suppressing the truth? How is his anger revealed if we cared to look? You know, is it the tick? Is it the wooden spoon drawer? What, how do you see it? Well, at least the beginning of it is here, and it gives us over to what we've always wanted. That's what he does in his anger. Just let me do what everyone. Uh, in his wrath, we read those three awful words, God gave them over. It's the words of the parents who's like, had enough, and they're like, enough. You don't want me, you can get out of the house. Go live your own life, see how well that works out. What does God give us over to in his anger? Well, he gives them over in verse 24 to their own sinful desires, particularly, particularly the degrading of their own bodies with each other. He gives them over in verse 26 to their own shameful lusts. 
He gives them over in verse 28 to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done and what follows is a great long list of all of humanity's evils. And we don't need to go into details because we see it daily on our TV screens, in the news. We see it in the titillation of our entertainment industry that makes money out of these very stories of depravity. We see it in the breakdown of our homes and families. We see it in the breakdown of community. We see it in the increase in violence in the home and out of the home. We see it in the emptiness of youth culture and just the nothing to live for. We see it in the fact that our community is drowning itself in alcohol and in gambling. We even see it in our own lives, don't we? I mean, who can be claimed to be free of all these things? I can't, you know. Shameful lusts, sex outside of God's good plans, envy. I mean, who doesn't envy? Uh, I know you're all envious of me and my good looks, but, you know, um, strife. You know, who doesn't fight? Deceit, malice, gossip. I know who gossips. You want to hear? Uh, slander. Arrogance, boasting, I thank God, I'm more humble than all you lot. Anyway, in 1971, John Lennon asked us to imagine something. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. And it was the great anthem of the 1970s calling on our world to reject God and see what a wonderful society and world we would create without him. You know, an atheistic utopia, just like Russia or Poland. I met someone from uh, Belarus the other day who grew up there and the depravity or North Korea. There's an atheist utopia. Yeah, right. Uh, the Atlanta Olympics, that were a while ago, uh, during the final, you know, the, the closing ceremony, Stevie Wonder sang, imagine, uh, about the brotherhood of man and so on, at the celebration of the Olympics, which is all about the future of humanity and the great things that we can do together and bringing the nations together. But there's a certain irony to the whole thing. I mean, he was singing in a stadium of about 80,000 people who'd all paid the big bucks to be there and watch, and to the exclusion of everyone who couldn't afford it. The spectators had all been through metal detectors to stop violence. Uh, the athletes had all been drug tested because everyone's cheating. The officials had all had their bank accounts scrutinised and checked because of greed and corruption. The sport's great, I, and I like watching you know weird stuff like curling and you know things you'd never even heard of. But but it doesn't quite deliver what it says, does it? This love and brotherhood of man. And then there's uh, John Mark Chapman. Anyone know who he is? Yeah, 
Oh, that's, that's John Chapman, no, not him. Uh, Mark, well, let's just go with Mark Chapman. His name is. He's the man, yeah. He murdered John Lennon. Just walked up and shot him. Because he was a fan. He loved him. Killed him. He's still in jail 37 years later. And the one person who turns up his appeal to, to, to say, never let this man out, I will never forgive him, Yoko Ono. Because she's all about forgiveness and love and the brotherhood of man. Imagine. I can't imagine. It's just not what really happens when we take God out of the picture. For when we ignore God, he hands us over to ourselves. And look what we do when we're in charge. We destroy ourselves and each other. So what's the answer? Is there an answer? Is Paul just being a complete misery guts? Well, no, because... It's only chapter one. <laughs> there is an answer, and it's a wonderful answer, an answer that's a gift, a gift that's far greater than any gift you're going to give or receive today. Um, it's a gift of a heart transplant, a spiritual heart transplant. And you know what a heart transplant is. I mean, you've, you, you've had heart attacks and problems, and you know, you're going to die. And they find someone else who's dead who's got a healthy heart. Well, can't be that healthy if they've died. But anyway... Uh, <laughs> But they cut it out of their body and they stick it in yours. They replace your heart with someone else's so that you can live. Well, we all need that as a spiritual heart transplant. We need to be changed. We need to be forgiven. We need to know our creator. And that's why Jesus came. Uh, that's Jesus' mission, actually, to change our hearts, to actually win us forgiveness. And he did it all. He accomplished it all on the cross. That's where he paid for us. That's where he bought forgiveness with God. That's where he dealt with our sins and failings, by dying our death in our place. And now he is in the business of recreating a people for himself by giving heart transplants, metaphorically, renewing people in their relationship with God for eternity uh, and we are with him beyond the grave. That's why Jesus came. That's what Christianity is all about, Jesus saving us. That's why we so desperately need him. Now, we'd love to talk about it with you personally. Uh, we'd love for you to explore how it all works. If you, if you haven't had that heart transplant already, well, many of us have, and we rejoice, God, that he's in the business of heart transplants. Uh, it's a great miracle. But that's why we're working through this book of Romans over this term and next term, uh, which drives towards the compelling true answer of Jesus. And I hope you'll come back, even if you're visiting just for today. You thought you were visiting just for today. Keep coming back because we're coming to the answer. Paul's raised the problem and we need to honestly deal with the problems and face them. But it's also why we're starting Christianity Explored this Saturday night. For anyone who hasn't kind of worked it out or is still unsure or has got questions, uh, and you're very welcome to join in. We've got, we've got uh, more than half a dozen starters already. It's going to be a wonderful time of dinner, friendship, but, but asking your questions and finding out if it's all true. It's free. Uh, and it'll be a good time, good time to sort out things with Jesus. But to find the answer, a good place to start is to stop ignoring God and to stop refusing to listen to what he's saying and maybe even start to thank him sometime. That would be a good place to start, wouldn't it? And a bit of it wouldn't go astray with our mums either or our wives or our grandmas or all the ladies in our lives. 
Father, we want to thank you that even though these are hard words, they're true words and they, they drive us towards Jesus. Father, we pray for those who are here who haven't had this heart transplant and who need it. Please uh, give it to them, show them the truth, help them to work things out with you. Thank you that Jesus has died for our sins, that he's, he's in the business of remaking people who are hardened against you and ignoring you. Thank you that he's remade many of us turned us around, given us a whole new life. And thank you that you haven't abandoned us in your wrath, that even though you're angry in your love, you have given your son. We thank you for that mercy and we pray again with the psalmist that you would teach us to number our days aright, that we might have wise hearts, not foolish hearts like this world, but wise hearts that want to hear you and seek after you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.